not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tuckered Out. My name is Troy, I'm your host. Here with me is my good friend Tyler. How you doing, Tyler? I'm doing well, Troy. Thanks for asking. Good, good. Yeah, so what are we doing here? This is a show about Tucker Carlson tonight, and everyone's reaction when I tell them I'm doing a podcast about Tucker Carlson is, why the hell would you do that? So here we go. Tucker Carlson has the most watched cable news show in history. He draws an audience of around four and a half million people a night, and he is therefore America's leading propagandist. And I think that it's important that somebody point out his propagandizing and explain what he's up to and why he's doing it. I didn't see anybody else doing that, so we're going to give it a shot here and hopefully you know, make some jokes and have some fun while we're doing it. So with that said, this week we are covering Tucker's show from February 8th through 10th. I chose that range because there are things in that range of episodes that really illustrate Tucker's rhetorical tricks and some of his propagandistic habits. So I thought it would be a good place for us to start where I can kind of paint the reason I'm doing this show and why I think it's important. So with that said, let's jump right into it. This first clip here is from the Monday, February 8th show. And unfortunately, because we're living in the world we're living in, it is about COVID. Some medical news for you off the top. Last month, the CDC issued a press release that begins this way, quote, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is expanding the requirement for a negative COVID-19 test to all air passengers entering the United States. Testing before and after travel is a critical layer to slow the introduction and spread of COVID-19. The strategy is consistent with the current phase of the pandemic and more efficiently protects the health of Americans. Got that? It's all about the health of Americans. And that's why every human being who enters this country by air must first present a negative test for the coronavirus. That includes American citizens. There are no exceptions. Corona infection, in fact, is the one universal reality of the human condition. We are all potential incubators of this deadly violence, vi virus. But it doesn't end there. Travelers who test negative for COVID must still wear masks at all times. And that includes while on board the airplane or while walking through the airport. If you don't have a mask on, you had better be actively chewing. Otherwise, prepare for a steep fine and the possibility of never flying again. Nor is one mask necessarily enough. Tony Fauci has announced we ought to consider wearing three masks at once. A paper petticoat for your face. That's how serious our government is about fighting this global pandemic. But of course, you knew that you've watched it. You know that the risk is imminent and profound enough that your children likely have been out of school for a year. Your business may be shut down right now. Your parents may have died alone, unable to hold your hand in the final days. The United States itself bears no resemblance to the place you once knew 12 months ago. But those are the sacrifices you have been asked to make and you have, and for good reason. COVID is dangerous. It's existentially dangerous, they keep telling us. The authorities are more than willing to destroy your family and your country in order to protect you from this virus. That's their public position, stated every day. Did you know that that was the public position of the authorities, Tyler? Uh, you know, I can't say that I did. 
Um, but he said it so authoritatively. Th- that's true. That's how I know. That's how I know that he's telling the truth, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, like I said, I, I labeled this clip "Tucker builds a straw man" because we had we have a really clear example here of him creating an argument that he pretends other people are making so he can then attack it. Um, nobody is like, we're going to destroy the country to protect us from this existentially dangerous virus. It's just like, we don't want droves of vulnerable people to die when we can prevent it. Um, right, right. And like, there was a lot in there. I was trying to keep track of as much as I could, but something that stood out to me was um, the coronavirus is universal to the human condition COVID is as universal to the human condition as dying in a car crash is you can take preventative measures to not die in a car crash like wearing a seatbelt and not driving when you're drunk and you can wear a mask to not to prevent yourself from dying of COVID it's not it's not like you're born into getting COVID and dying the way he the way he expressed that seems really disingenuous in this in this next clip, we're going to hear Tucker elaborate on his point a bit. Um, now that he has built the straw man, he can tear it down, and we're going to hear one of his favorite rhetorical tricks, where he tries to pretend that he is a warrior of the working class man. So buckle in for this. Do they actually mean it when they say it, though? Those pictures of California Governor Gavin Newsom eating a maskless dinner in a crowded room at the most expensive restaurant in America were one indication that, no, maybe they're not entirely sincere about their COVID policies. Maybe it's kind of a sham. Maybe there's one standard for you, a member of the despised and much bullied plebe class, and another very different standard for politically favored groups who can do whatever they want. Now, you'd hate to think that could be true in a country like this a country with such a long and noble history of egalitarianism and equality under the law. Unfortunately, there has been growing evidence of that double standard. Now there's hard proof. There's hard proof. The the privileged class of white rich men, like like Tucker is? <laughs> yeah, this, and I'm sure this will come up more as we go along. I don't want to delve too deep into Tucker's personal life on the show, but we can just say he has been rich as fuck his entire life. His full name is Tucker McNear Swanson Carlson. His father owned islands. He went to a very expensive school. Um, I'm not trying to impugn the man for the situation he was born in, but this framing that he on the he's on the side of the despised plebe class against these predatory billionaires, it's just so disingenuous. But there's proof now of this double standard that we're not actually living in an egalitarian nation under the law. Uh, do you know what that proof is, Tyler? Uh, you know, I can't I can't even imagine. That would completely destroy my concept of this country if we weren't living in a perfectly egalitarian <laughs> state. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so we are going to hear Tucker elaborate his point now and jump into his first narrative. Tonight, we've learned the Joe Biden administration is releasing thousands of foreign nationals living here illegally into American neighborhoods without bothering to test them for the coronavirus. People from countries with high infection rates living in crowded conditions sent forth into the American population like COVID isn't real. That's happening. It is the official policy of the U.S. government. On Friday, the White House was asked about this policy, and here was the response. 
the U.S. Customs and Border Protection is saying that they're having to catch and release some migrants without giving them any kind of, of COVID test uh, before they're entering the community. So what what is being done? What could be done? Are you, are you suggesting they're letting people in across the border without testing them? Or just tell me a little bit more. They're, they're being released. They're having to, because of the uh, executive order that the president signed earlier this week. Which, which executive? Which one? Yeah, which one? COVID-infected illegal aliens released into the United States? Whatever. It's not like there's a pandemic. The press secretary didn't care enough to answer the question. No big deal. Can I remind you that our treasury secretary is a woman? Shut up. You've been empowered. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so I, sh I should have mentioned up top, he, d he plays a clip there of a reporter in the press pool uh, asking that question to White House press secretary Jen Psaki. And she fumbles a bit there, but... It's not because she wasn't equipped to answer the question, it's because the question was intentionally unclear. You wouldn't know it from Tucker's coverage, but what he's talking about is catch and release. This was a policy under the Obama administration that the Trump administration ended, and Joe Biden has now essentially reinstated. All it means, essentially, it's a term used to describe the process through which certain immigrants are apprehended and released from Department of Homeland Security custody pending their immigration court proceedings. When immigrants are apprehended, they are released from DHS pending their court hearings and not held in custody indefinitely or deported. Oh, people who didn't commit crimes aren't put in jail? What a what a wild idea that is. I know, it's it's <laughs> insane. We're living in anarchy. Uh, noted anarchist to Joseph Robinette Biden. <laughs> yeah, so Radical leftist Joe Biden. In, in particular, the executive order that they're attacking here is Executive Order 13993, Revision of Civil, Civil Immigration Enforcement Policies and Priorities. Uh, specifically, Section 2 of that executive order is dedicated to revoking Executive Order 13768, which was signed by Donald Trump on January 25th, 2017 which, among other things, ended catch and release and instructed the government to seek maximum civil fines and penalties for all undocumented Im immigrants. The issue of COVID testing is a misdirection. He mentions that these are people from countries with high infection rates, ignoring that the people he's talking about have likely been living here for some time. So the country of origin is irrelevant. And I'm, I'm shocked by the language he uses. Like, they're setting them loose into our country like wild animals. Like, I don't know. I, I, he, he's just so obviously talking about brown people like they're animals and not humans. And yeah, he's yeah. on cable. Yeah, it, it's bad. So, a little bit more on the catch and release, just because you might be wondering why uh, the Biden administration feels this policy makes sense. This is from the organization Justice for Immigrants website. Detaining individuals who present no safety or flight risk has both human and economic cost. It needlessly robs these individuals of their dignity and is a drain on limited DHS resources. In fact, costs in fiscal year 2019 are anticipated to be $124 per individual per day for those in adult detention and $319 per day for families in detention. Furthermore, many migrants entering the United States are seeking protection and already have strong community ties upon arrival, strengthening their incentive to comply with immigration requirements. These individuals are often received by family members and friends who have been in the country for some time, 
and are eager to help their loved ones integrate into their new communities. But Tucker has a different theory about why they're doing this. The question is motive. Why are they doing this? Even if you thought the United States badly needed more low-skilled workers in the middle of an employment crisis, even if you believe that, even if you believe that your right to cheap housekeeping is more important than the right of the American middle class to exist, and many of our leaders emphatically do believe that, how exactly do you explain suspending the hunt for sex offenders? How is that a good idea for anyone? How is it a good idea to release illegal aliens in the middle of a pandemic without even testing them for the coronavirus? How does all of that conceivably help you as an American, as someone who pays for all of this stuff? Well, of course, it doesn't help you, but helping you is not the point. No one's even pretending the point of this was to help you. It's the opposite. The point is to punish you. When we release people who break our laws without even bothering to test them for the virus, the same virus we've used as a pretext for wrecking your life, what we're really saying in the clearest possible terms is we don't like you. This isn't a policy, it's an act of aggression. It's designed to humiliate you and demoralize you. Reckless and destructive immigration policy is the penalty you are paying for your white supremacy. Yeah, so I listened to a lot of Tucker, and that hit my ears even as pretty overt calls to, uh, though, people in his audience who might have predilections towards some white identity stuff. It is so hard to not stop this every five seconds when he says something stupid or racist. <laughs> and fe- feel I, free to feel free to interrupt. I, I, I've listened to most of these a hundred times. I fucking hate him. I welcome any interruption. Well, it's just it like the one that caught my ear. It, it's just it's a total non sequitur. What? Why was he talking about cheap housing? Is preventing the middle class from existing? What does that have to do with immigration? And what are those? I don't. There's no relation between cheap housekeeping, preventing the middle class to. Is this about property taxes now? Like, where did that come from? (laughs) Yeah, and this is this was something I had to accept when I was writing this episode. Was that I'm not going to be able to respond to everything he says because he has five hours a week to just spew a constant stream of bullshit. And you and don't have I 40 can... hours a week to make a podcast about everything he says that's wrong. Exactly. <laughs> um, but one thing I do want to draw attention to there, he mentioned uh, suspending the hunt for sex offenders. He's talking about something called Operation Talon. Tucker is framing it as the Biden administration has now ended this policy, which was targeting sex offenders. Now, here's the thing. A senior ICE official told the Washington Post... Homeland Security Investigations, a separate wing of ICE that conducts criminal investigations, has continued investigating sex offenses involving U.S. citizens and non-citizens. Additionally, Operation Talon, the program operation that was suspended, was put into effect only within the final weeks of the Trump administration. According to the story, the official said, the Biden administration had nothing to do with that decision to terminate the program. And it was possible that career staffers had planned it and set it aside while waiting new instructions from the Biden team. So, because it was never even enacted, I couldn't find any clear information on exactly what Operation Talon was supposed to do, but it was put on hold before Biden even took office. Senior ICE officials essentially shelved it while waiting new instructions from the new administration. Uh, And meanwhile, they still have an entire department that is still investigating sex sex crimes involving non-citizens. So... Next, this brings us to our first guest on the show, 
Uh, Tucker brings on Sheriff A.J. Louderback. He's the Jackson County Sheriff in Texas, and I have no evidence that he coaches high school football, but judging by his name, I'm certain he does. Yeah, I was just going to say, A.J. Louderback is his real name. <laughs> it sure is. It's it's beautiful. Um, I only cut one clip from this interview. It's, it's not super interesting. A.J. Louderback isn't an especially dynamic figure. Um, and I don't think he was fully briefed on the narrative. Tucker really wants to talk about COVID testing, and Sheriff Lauderback isn't particularly interested in that narrative. He's more con- he's more concerned with a memo that he got on his desk. Joining us now is A.J. Lauderback. He's the Jackson County Sheriff. We're happy to have uh, you with us, Sheriff Lauderback. Thank you, Is sir. it true um, in the state of Texas that People who have been detained because they're not here legally, they're foreign nationals, are being released without coronavirus tests. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. It's even, if I could continue, Tucker, the the memo, uh, the memo that uh, I received this last week, um, it's essentially a defund the ICE by memo, by memorandum. Uh, that was sent out by David Pekoski on January 20th of uh, 21. So this is a, a particularly devastating document uh, for Texans and Americans here in the United States. Uh, the message really has been sent uh, when I read it first and looked at it. Um, it's a message to the world. You can come here illegally. You can commit crimes here against Americans and remain here illegally. But of all things, the coronavirus, since Americans are now being told in the near future, we may not be allowed to fly on airplanes domestically without being proven free of the virus, without a certificate that says we've been tested and are negative. How in a country like that could we just forget to test illegal aliens for the virus before releasing them? Like, how did that happen? Do you know? No, I'm I'm sure it wasn't a, a, wasn't a, a, a forgot item. So Sheriff Lauderback does not give a shit about this COVID narrative that Tucker tries to bring him back to. That, and he brings up this memo and doesn't say anything about it. He he was just like, there's a memo on my desk and it's telling the whole world that they can come here freely and, like, what did it say? Who is it from? They're go- They're gonna defund ICE? From a memo (laughs) that someone put on your desk, dude? Luckily, I'm here to tell you. So that memo he's talking about was from Acting Homeland Security Director David Pekoski. It's called Review of an Interim Revision to Civil Immigration Enforcement and Removal Policies and Priorities. Section A of the memo says that the Department of Homeland Security will review immigration enforcement practices and issue recommendations within 100 days for any changes. So essentially, it's... uh, Hey, we're letting you guys know the Biden administration is going to be reviewing the practices that have been put in place, and we're going to be issuing recommendations for whatever we're going to change shortly. Section B, then, is the section that Sheriff Lauderback is especially upset about, and that outlines enforcement priorities. I'm just going to quote briefly from Section B of the memo. Sounds good. Interim civil enforcement guidelines due to limited resources— DHS cannot respond to all immigration violations or remove all persons unlawfully in the United States. Rather, DHS must implement civil immigration enforcement based on sensible priorities and changing circumstances. D- 
DHS's civil immigration enforcement priorities are protecting national security, border security, and public safety. The review directed in Section A will enable the development, issuance, and implementation of detailed revised enforcement priorities. In the interim and pending completion of that review, the Department's priorities shall be 1. National security. Individuals who who have engaged in or are suspected of terrorism or espionage, or whose apprehension, arrest, and or custody is otherwise necessary to protect national security. 2. Border security. Individuals apprehended at the border or ports of entry while attempting to unlawfully enter the United States on or after November 1, 2020, or who were not physically present in the United States before November 1, 2020. And 3. Public safety. Individuals incarcerated within federal, state, and local prisons and jails released on or after the issuance of this memo, who have been convicted of an aggravated felony, are determined to pose a threat to public safety or a priority for enforcement. So, essentially, the memo was saying, we're not going to uh, have ICE tracking every undocumented immigrant in the country. We're going to be focusing on people who have committed aggravated felonies or pose a national security risk. Um, it also still excludes migrants who cross the border after November 1st, so those people are still being deported. The rationale for that is um, if they were living here prior to that, they probably are, are established somewhere, maybe are working a job, and they're not an immediate priority for enforcement, which is a big problem, apparently. My apparently. favorite part of this memo, though, is the the next sentence, which says, and I quote, Nothing in this memorandum prohibits the apprehension or detention of individuals unlawfully in the United States who are not identified by the by the priorities herein. So essentially, that's just saying you don't even have to follow the guidelines laid out in this memo. <laughs> so defund ICE is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and something that Tucker is willfully not pointing out is that this is only ICE enforcement. So somebody who is undocumented and commits a crime isn't exempt from punishment. They're just going to be dealt with by local law enforcement and not escalated to ICE because it's not a priority for the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> yeah, like while you were reading that, all I was really hearing was, hey, a new president has been installed and we have new policy priorities regarding immigration, which happens every time we have a new president. So like... It's crazy, right? And I think Tucker needs to try and keep bringing this back to the COVID narrative because he doesn't want to make clear this is just a return to how things were four years ago, because then his audience will say, hey, I wasn't murdered by an immigrant four years ago. Maybe this isn't so bad. We wouldn't want them coming to sensible conclusions now. No. (laughs) Yes. so uh, this next clip is incredibly stupid. But we get to see another one of Tucker's favorite little tricks in his uh, magic bag. He's going to play a clip here of a reporter talking about Trump's second impeachment trial. Now, we have the benefit of living in a future. We know how that turned out. I'm not going to talk about it a lot. But in particular, this reporter made one statement here that Tucker is real fired up about. Well, it used to be there was a time, as they say, when most sane people in this country believe that bombing American citizens with military drone strikes in this country just because you don't like their politics, a little over the top, maybe a little too far, maybe not the unity we were looking for, but things have changed. Supporters of Donald Trump, it turns out, were so dangerous that maybe they do deserve hellfire missiles raining down on their homes. Watch. 
We had a policy, and it was very controversial. It was carried out under the Bush years and under the Obama years of attacking terrorism at its root, of going after and killing, um, and in the case of Amr al-Awlaki, an American, a Yemeni American, with a drone strike for the crime of inciting violence, inciting terrorism. Mitch McConnell was in the Senate then. He was in the Senate after 9-11, too. How does Mitch McConnell, who understands that the way you root out terrorism is to take on, in the case of Islamic terrorism, kill those who incite it, how does he not vote to convict someone that he said, on the floor of the Senate, incited an insurrection? Yeah. Okay, we, we play a lot of pretty over-the-top video on this show, particularly from that channel and that news anchor. Save that tape. No matter what happens next, that will live forever as one of the craziest things ever said on cable television and one of the most ominous. This is something he does all the time, where he plays a clip and then just pretends that they said something they didn't say. Um, I will grant that that reporter's framing wasn't great, could have used another draft, but she isn't suggesting that we rain hellfire missiles on people who voted for Trump. What she's saying is that when she worked in the Obama administration, they had a policy of taking out the leaders of terrorist movements as a way to cripple the movements themselves. Uh, she goes on to say that Mitch McConnell was in the Senate and supported that policy at the time. And further, Mitch McConnell said on the Senate floor that Donald Trump incited the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. So what she's saying there is that if, Mc if McConnell agrees that Trump incited an insurrection and that it's a good policy to go after the leaders of terrorist movements that then how can he not vote to convict Trump? Um, but Tucker, he doesn't give any context for where that clip is, what sh why she's asking it, or even who the reporter is, because he doesn't want his audience to actually interact with the content of what she's saying. He just wants them to feel attacked. Indeed. Um, the mistake that she is making is that Mitch McConnell believes in something and cares about being consistent when he says things. Yeah, uh, that is a hang-up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we aren't going to talk about that anymore because, like I said, we know how the impeachment thing turns out. So, we're going to move on. Tucker's next big narrative is about school reopenings. And he brings on a guy named Dr. Mark Siegel. Dr. Mark Siegel is Fox News' resident physician. I have not looked much into the man. I cannot impugn his credentials. As far as I can tell, he's a fine doctor. He is on Fox News shows all the goddamn time. And uh, he has a air about him. He's a, he's a showman. I'll give him that. There's a reason they have him on. And Tim and Tucker really misrepresent some data. Well, the Centers for Disease Control has come out with a new study showing what every other study on the topic has shown since the beginning of this pandemic. Schools are, quote, low transmission zones for the coronavirus. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said it is safe for teachers to return to schools even before they have been vaccinated. But her party is not convinced. Last night, Joe Biden explained that the Democratic Party's donors, and of course the biggest donors always been the teachers unions, are more important than the kids they teach. I think it's time for schools to reopen safely. Safely. You have to have fewer people in the classroom. You have to have ventilation systems that have been reworked. Our CDC commissioner is going to be coming out with science-based judgment within, I think, as early as Wednesday as the layout, what the minimum requirements are. 
Yep. So we got to shake you down before we can open the schools. Dr. Mark Siegel joins us tonight to assess the science behind all this. Doctor, good to see you. Good to see you, Tucker. Follow the science, said President Biden, but that may not apply to teachers unions, right? So listen, what is the science? It's becoming clearer and clearer every day. The longer schools stay closed, the more mental health problems there are, the more the CDC itself is reporting more visits to mental health urgent care. And then there's this huge study out of North Carolina of 90,000 kids and teachers that showed only 32 cases of COVID and over 770 in the community itself. Clearly, COVID is not spreading in schools the way it is in the community. So follow the science, says open the schools. And sure enough, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said as much. And she said it more than once last week. And she said, yes, teachers should be a priority to be vaccinated, but that's not the rate limiting step. And then I looked. And I saw Press Secretary Jen Psaki saying that she was talking in her personal capacity. Wait a minute. Personal capacity? You mean as the head of infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital, one of the top infectious disease specialists in the world? That's her personal capacity? This guy talks like a bard. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I kind of love Dr. Mark Siegel. I'm excited when I see him come on. Um, So... What does the science say? Well, let's start with that study that Dr. Mark Siegel brought up. And this was a study from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Over a nine-week period, researchers identified 32 cases of COVID-19 from a sample of nearly 100,000 students. This study took place in North Carolina, a state which requires schools to follow mitigation strategies, including face coverings for children ages 5 and older, 6-foot distancing, hand washing, and daily symptom monitoring and temperature checks. There were three clusters of at least five cases, each in the same facility. One involved pre-kindergarten students who were exempt from face-covering requirements, and two others were among special needs classes. In addition to face coverings, distance, and hand washing, researchers found benefits from daily health screenings, transparency in reporting infections, efficient contact tracing, and close collaboration with health departments. As a result of these findings, the American Academy of Pediatrics has been advocating for schools to implement science-based measures that will allow them to conduct classes safely in person, including requiring everyone two years and older wear a cloth face covering, enforce physical distancing, and improve air circulation. It has stressed the importance of reducing the spread of the virus within communities and ensuring access to testing, both of which will help make it safer to re-enter schools. So you might rec- you might recognize the recommendations as exactly what Joe Biden said in that clip Tucker played. <laughs> um, Go figure. So anyway, in this next clip, Dr. Mark Siegel tells a really dumb story, and Tucker has, I gotta say, the correct reaction to it. (laughs) Anyway, moving on from that, they definitely should be open to schools, Tucker, and I'll tell you why. Right here on the front lines in New York City, a teacher went on a Zoom call today, Tucker, to his middle school children, and he announced, our middle schools are opening, finally, on February 25th. And you know what he said? He said there were kids that came out that he didn't even know were there. He hadn't heard from them in months. They were rejoicing. They were celebrating. They were cheering. And one child who he hadn't even known was still in his class said two words, Tucker. Let's go. Tucker. Ah, it's great to see you, Dr. (laughs) Siegel. Thank you. The kids were crawling out of the floorboards. (laughs) I didn't know you were in this class. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, 
I don't often laugh out loud listening to Tucker's show, but that, <laughs> ah, I loved that. That is how you react to that story. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so then, now we move into our first explicitly culture war narrative. Unfortunately, we have to say goodbye to Dr. Mark Siegel for now, but don't worry, he will return. Thank God. <laughs> There's a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Tucker's next story is about a L.A. Times colonist named Virginia Heffernan. Um, Tucker is going to tell us what the story is about, but I'll just give you a little context up top. Virginia Heffernan, like I said, columnist for the L.A. Times, she wrote a story, or not a story, but an opinion column, about how at her vacation home, her neighbors, who she knows voted for Trump, plowed her driveway without asking. And she's contemplating whether or not they deserve thanks for that because they support policy she considers a detriment. It's a really dumb column. Like, I, I read it. It's it's stupid. I'm not going to jump to Virginia Heffernan's defense. That said, this is an opinion column in the LA Times, and this is what Tucker is choosing to cover on the most watched news show in the country. It must have been a really slow week at the LA Times. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going to hear Tucker talk about Virginia Heffernan here. He he takes some of what she says out of context a little bit, but it, not terrible, and I'm not going to rush to her defense because I don't care. Well, over at the LA Times, a columnist called Virginia Heffernan is out with a new piece comparing her neighbors, who she believes voted for Trump, to terrorists and Nazis. What did they do wrong exactly? Well, it turns out they may have plowed the snow from her driveway. You might see that as an act of generosity, but to Virginia Heffernan, who went to Harvard, by the way, it was an act of violence. Heffernan wrote this, quote, Hezbollah, the Shiite Islamist political party in Lebanon, also gives things away for free. And then she added this all-time great observation, quote, free driveway work, nice as it is, is just not the same currency as justice and truth, end quote, which apparently she alone gets to define. Justice and truth. Virginia Heffernan in charge of justice and truth. There's something deep about this piece, something very revealing about the state of the country right now in the state of the left. Greg Gutfeld is the host of Greg Gutfeld Show, co-host of The Five, author of The Plus, Self-Help for People Who Hate Self-Help. He's thought deeply about what this column means, because it does mean something, and joins us now to explain. Greg Gutfeld, good to see you. It does mean something. Yeah, so Tucker has this guy, Greg Gutfeld, on. He's thought very deeply about this, Tyler. So let's hear Greg Gutfeld's deep thoughts. I'm so excited. Good to see you, Tucker. Uh, if I ever, Tucker, you have to make this promise to me. If I ever become a cartoon of myself, right. take me out and shoot me. Because I cannot tell if this person who wrote this is for real or a cartoon of herself. <laughs> um, I think it might be time to take him out. And shoot him. Just, <laughs> I just like from what I've heard so far, not knowing anything about the rest of the the conversation. I think it's time. So we're already there. I need you to make me this promise, Tyler. If I ever become a cartoon of myself, it, you push me off a cliff so that I can run with my legs and float in the air. Promise. I promise, Trey. You got it, dude. Yeah, so they they bullshit a little bit more, and then uh, Tucker tries to make a deeper point about this, because Greg Gutfeld just isn't delivering, but it quickly gets derailed, and then Greg gets real weird. <laughs> well, it, but, but what she reveals is what she and a lot of people in her world really think, which is that ideology is much more important 
than human kindness. Relationships mean nothing compared to yes. your ideas. That's why that's why they were able to hold up Teddy Kennedy, who killed a woman as a champion of women because he was for abortion. Like, that's kind of all they care mm-hmm. about is ideology. Yeah. The- Relevant reference, Teddy Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And how dare those liberals only care about ideology, not human kindness, you know? (laughs) This is so dumb. Um, But yeah, like I said, this gets derailed quickly, and I'm excited for you to hear where it goes. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Whenever there's a hurricane or whatnot, uh, you always see the pickup trucks going in, helping anybody. Right. She's the type of person who probably wouldn't, (laughs) because she is like, you need to have, I'm sorry to say, you need to have Trump supporters in this world. I know that's scary to liberals, but they're usually really useful. They know how to fix things. They know that they're, uh, I said this before, a truck in Idaho is more useful than an art studies degree in Brooklyn. Well, I agree with that. Hey, Virginia Heffernan, see if you can keep the power grid going for a week. (laughs) Can I just ask you, since you make such a smart point, have you noticed that the angriest people in America are the ones with absolutely no useful skills? People like Virginia Heffernan. No useful skills. Does not do anything. By the way, yeah, Tucker, I, I will, I can't point that finger at anybody other than me. I have no useful skills whatsoever. I am, (laughs) I am pathetic. With any kind of electrical devices, I, um, I, I, it's amazing uh, that I'm even allowed outside my house because I am, I'm a klutz. I just <laughs> fell and landed on my tailbone and I, I, it's it, the sitting is excruciating, Tucker, but because I love you, I did the show anyway. <laughs> that is really is the measure of love, isn't it? Well, I hope Virginia Hefferton gets back to even you. though, even. Even though, tell uh, you me. You know what? I would plow your driveway any day, Tucker. I would do it. And that's no euphemism. Oh my God. It's the real deal. I, I will plow your driveway. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure how to respond, but I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. The great Greg Gutfeld. Thank you. <laughs> the great Greg Gutfeld. <laughs> okay, okay. Can we please talk about the tension in that conversation? <laughs> Those two men want to fuck each other. Yeah, that that laugh at the end is. Okay. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I'll um, plow your driveway, big boy. <laughs> I'm here, even though I hurt my tailbone, Tucker. <laughs> and, and just that whole riff about liberals having no useful skills or whatever—it's so dumb. Like it, Virginia Heffernan tried to keep the power grid on for a week. Who the fuck could do that? <laughs> yeah. Like, that was the dumbest example for him to pull out of his ass. Um, so, yeah, we're going to move on from Virginia Heffernan now. Um, Tucker wants to talk about Robin Hood. I'm not sure he totally understands what happened with Robin Hood and GameStop, but he doesn't say anything completely off base, so I'm going to leave that part alone. Um, he has a guest on to talk about the situation with Robin Hood uh, short-selling stocks it, you know what happened. Everybody knows what happened by now. We hope so. <laughs> but, Tyler, you will never guess who Tucker has on as a guest to talk about this story. Oh, no. So, the entertainer Ice Cube is bringing a class action suit against Robinhood, the app, after Robinhood prevented its own users from buying shares. We'll talk to his business partner about this suit. Why did they bring it? That's next. Ice Cube's business partner. <laughs> <laughs> You're joking? This is a meme? Like, 
Tucker Carlson did not just bring Ice Cube onto his show. No, it's it's Ice Cube's business partner. He couldn't get ice. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> He's the founder of the uh, the label that Ice Cube is on, and um, that doesn't make him any more credible about stocks, though. <laughs> I gotta say though, this guy, his name is uh, Jeff Katanitz. He's awesome. Um, uh, all right, I'll take your word for it. Something tells me Tucker did not know anything about what this dude was going to say before we had him on the show. <laughs> so then Tucker gets kind of backed into nodding his head and agreeing with some accidental leftism. Last month, in really a pivotal moment in the history of our markets, the trading app Robinhood, which is designed for retail investors to get involved in markets, normal people, stepped in and prevented its own users from buying dozens of stocks. That include shares of GameStop and AMC. Robinhood wanted users to sell those shares. Why? In order to bail out hedge funds that had shorted those companies. Now the business partner of entertainer Ice Cube is bringing a class action suit against Robinhood for doing that. Jeff Katanitz is the co-founder of Big Three. He's a television and film producer, and as we said, a business partner of Ice Cube. He joins us tonight. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Why are you doing this? Tell us what this suit is about and what you hope to achieve. Well, first of all, I just want to say that while Ice Cube always supports the little guy, this is in my um, using my Harvard Law degree with two class action lawyers from Florida. So Good. I'm purely as a lawyer here. But I think to take a step back is very important. It's important to question a system that gives rise to constant abuse of the 99 percent by the rich, powerful elite. And that's what happened here in 1987, 2001, 2008. We see, we, see, we see the abuse happen, and at the end of the day, people get bailed out, no one goes to jail, and the little guy gets, holding the, gets caught holding the bag. And I think that's what happened here. Um, you know, we have a problem in America, obviously. People have a problem trusting our institutions. And yes. whether you're a Robin Hood viewer, uh, I mean user, or if you're someone else who just sees what happened, you distrust institutions because here it is happening again. So in this environment, along comes Robin Hood and they say, we are going to support the little guy. We're going to democratize finance and we have your back. And the truth is Robin Hood is nothing but another Wall Street wolf in sheep's clothing. Damn. Yeah. How did this guy get on Tucker's show? Is that a mistake? <laughs> Yeah, like, this dude is awesome. <laughs> like, he could be a speechwriter for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> for real. Also, Ice Cube's business partner and record label founder has a degree from Harvard? It, yeah, I, this fellow is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, and the the fact that Tucker just sits there like, oh, yes, yes he's nodding the whole time that uh, Jeff Katnitz is talking. Tucker does not support any policies that would address any of these problems. It indicates how hollow his whole philosophy is, that he, he he has no policy prescriptions. He wants to be angry at billionaires because that gets him views. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's all we're going to hear of Jeff Katanitz. Um, Unfortunate. And that brings us to the end of Monday's show. He does have one more guest on to talk about how the U.S. government is... In, in the pocket of China, but I don't have time to cover that here. There, it's a rapid fire barrage of lies, and th that's so. I think that's going to be our first foxhole episode because it's going to take me a while to uh, delve into that. So we're going to skip it for now and jump into the episode from February 9th. 
Tucker opens this episode talking about how the impeachment trial is a sham and a distraction, and he doesn't want to talk about it, so we're not going to either. That's one area where we agree. Um, and after that, Tucker has, has some questions. After months of hearing that life could never return to normal until we get a vaccine, we got a vaccine, two vaccines, actually. But life did not return to normal. Life got worse. We were instructed to take the new vaccine as soon as possible and then to put on more masks. One mask was no longer enough. Anyone who complained about that was punished. Most people obeyed the orders. They had no choice. But the whole thing made them nervous. How could it not? Why exactly did the rules change all of a sudden, they wondered. Was there a good reason for that? When are we finally going to repeal corona law? And what about this vaccine? Why are Americans being discouraged from asking simple, straightforward questions about it? Questions like, how effective are these drugs? Are they safe? What's the miscarriage risk for pregnant women, for example? Is there a study on that? May we see it? And by the way, how much are the drug companies making off this stuff? Well, there's nothing QAnon about questions like that. They're not conspiracy theories. They're the most basic questions. In a democracy, every citizen has a right to know the answer. I'm going to drop a big fat what on that one? (laughs) This narrative was especially frustrating for me to try to parse out because Tucker is really talking on both sides of his mouth. He wants to appeal to the anti-vaccine contingent of his audience without actually saying anything anti-vaccine. So he ends up pretending that questions about it are being censored. So he, Tucker has questions. Lucky for him, I'm here to answer them. Uh, his first question. How effective are these vaccines? We'll start with the Pfizer vaccine. Pfizer vaccine has shown an efficacy of 95% at preventing symptomatic COVID infection after two doses. The vaccine appeared to be more or less equally protective across age groups and racial racial and ethnic groups. The Moderna vaccine was 94.1% effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19 after the second dose. The vaccine's efficacy appeared to be slightly lower in people 65 and older, but during a presentation to the Food and Drug Administration's Advisory Committee in December, the company explained that the numbers could have been influenced by the fact that there were few cases in that age group in the trial. The vaccine appeared to be equally effective across different ethnic and racial groups. Um, there's also the new Johnson & Johnson one-dose vaccine, which was shown to be 66% protective against moderate to severe COVID infections overall from 20 day- 28 days after the injection. There was variability based on geographic locations. The vaccine was 72% protective in the United States, 66% in South America, and 57% effective in South Africa. But the vaccine was shown to be 85% effective against severe cases of COVID-19, with no differences across countries, nor across age groups among trial participants. There were no hospitalizations or deaths in the vaccine arm of the trial. Furthermore, the New England Journal of Medicine conducted a study of the Pfizer vaccine. There were a total of 43,548 participants in that trial who underwent randomization. So, of those participants, 21,720 received the vaccine and 21,728 received a placebo. Among those who received the vaccine, there were eight cases of COVID-19 with onset at least seven days after the second dose. In the placebo group, there were 162 cases within the same interval. Among 10 cases of severe COVID-19 with onset after the first dose, nine occurred in placebo recipients and one in a vaccine recipient. Now, the New, that New England Journal of Medicine study 
which again involved over 43,000 people, drew the following conclusions. The safety profile of the Pfizer vaccine is characterized by short-term, mild-to-moderate pain at the injection site, fatigue, and headache. The incidence of serious adverse events was low and was similar in the vaccine and placebo groups. So that answers Tucker's second question, are they safe? Uh, there were six deaths in that trial. However, four of them were in the placebo group and didn't actually receive the vaccine. The other two, upon further review, there was no clear correlation between their deaths and the vaccine. Their deaths were consistent with statistical demographic trends. Outside the lab setting between December 14th and February 14th, over 52 million doses of the vaccine were administered in the United States, maintaining findings consistent with clinical trials. Tucker's third question is, what's the miscarriage risk? And for that, I'm going to quote from Harvard Medical School. The mRNA vaccine trials did not deliberately include pregnant or breastfeeding individuals, so our direct knowledge is currently limited. Some vaccine trial participants inadvertently became pregnant. 18 of these people received the vaccine. Further information may be available in coming months. When studied during animal tests, the mRNA vaccines did not affect fertility or cause any problems with pregnancy. In humans, we know that other kinds of vaccines generally are safe for use in pregnancy. In fact, many are recommended. It's also important to know that the mRNA vaccine does not contain any actual virus particles. Within hours or days, our bodies eliminate the mRNA particles used in the vaccine, so these particles are unlikely to cross the placenta, which has a very thick membrane. The antibodies that a pregnant individual generates, though, can cross the placenta and may help protect the baby after birth. Although the actual risk of severe illness and death among pregnant individuals is very low, it is higher when compared to non-pregnant individuals from the same age group. Those who are pregnant are at higher risk for being hospitalized in an intensive care unit and requiring high levels of care, including breathing support on a machine, and are at higher risk for dying if this happens. If you're pregnant, you may also wonder about risks if the fetus, risk to the fetus if you get COVID-19. Research suggests that having COVID-19 might increase risk of premature birth, particularly for those with severe illness. Furthermore, while the risk of the transmission from virus from mother to fetus is low, it does appear to be possible. So we don't have perfect data on this question. It is, re is it, it is a reasonable assumption, given currently available data, that the vaccine does not pose a miscarriage risk for pregnant women and probably reduces risk to the pregnancy overall. Um, and Tucker's last question, how much are drug companies making? And the answer is a lot. <laughs> As they are wont to do. Yep, that's kind of their MO. Uh, governments and philanthropic organizations have both put billions of dollars toward research and development of these vaccines. The BBC has a really detailed breakdown of which companies are getting funding from which sources, which I'm going to link in the show notes. Uh, what I'm trying to say is Tucker's not a very good journalist. <laughs> he, what? Uh, all of these questions have answers that are readily available, and he should be able to find them. In fact, you might argue that since he posits himself as a new show, if he is going to pose these questions, he has a responsibility to at least look for the answers. It only took me, like, less than an hour. Um, I'm happy to go work for Tucker's research team. I'm sure it pays better. <laughs> um, Tucker isn't done complaining about censorship of these questions, though. And uh, as usual, it becomes about class warfare. The media rollout for the vaccine came off like a Diet Pepsi commercial at the Super Bowl. Tons of celebrity endorsements, not a lot of science. It was totally disingenuous, and naturally, it had the opposite of the intended effect. Most Americans already supported vaccines. 
They didn't need to be browbeaten in order to be convinced. They were grateful their kids no longer get tetanus and polio and chickenpox. They weren't anti-vaxxers. And yet from the very first day, the way the authorities handled the COVID vaccine did not inspire confidence. If the vaccine was so great, why were all these people lying about it? Honest question. And they were lying, clearly they were lying. You know that for certain, because from the moment the COVID vaccine arrived, the most powerful people in America worked to make certain that no one could criticize it. Here's Bill Gates' wife on CNN back in December. <laughs> so I wanted to pause it there. Just let, let's follow the train of thought here. The vaccine roll. The vaccine was rolled out. People said good things about the fact that there was a vaccine. Uh huh. Um, and then Bill Gates' wife. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, anti-vax is a like a big problem in in america it, I, I don't know how widespread it is exactly but it's a big problem and pretending that it's not a problem now that there's a covid vaccine is a very tucker move yeah and, and this is it's like i said earlier right he's trying to have it both ways without it, he wants to he wants to keep the anti-vax contingent of his audience on board without having to take a surprise vacation again so, surprise vacation so yeah let's uh let's hear what melinda gates has to say and then hear tucker pretend to be outraged about it do the social media companies facebook youtube twitter on and on have a responsibility to do more right now melinda in terms of getting this misinformation this disinformation off their platforms they absolutely have a responsibility. The internet and the rise of social media has happened so quickly that really the regulations and the good policy making hasn't stayed out in front of it. And quite frankly, it needs to catch up. Oh, quite frankly, she says, we need to censor people's views on the COVID vaccine. Not now, remember, Melinda Gates <laughs> is not a scientist. She did not develop this vaccine. She has no background in epidemiology or any relevant discipline. She worked in the marketing department at Microsoft. But she's the wife of a billionaire. That's why she's on television. It's why she's allowed to control what you're allowed to say about the drug she is demanding you inject in your body. Is this really science? Not even close. It's oligarchy. And all the billionaires are participating in it. Don't trust rich white people on TV. Got it. Yeah, this is another example of Tucker brushing up against an actual problem and then taking a hard turn into total nonsense. Melinda Gates was asked her opinion because the Gates Foundation has done a ton of work deploying vaccines all over the world. Now, she has no say over social media companies' policies. Uh, like Tucker said, she has no relevant experience in that field. Um but true. in his conception of this, they're all like a big club that hang out. And I don't know, I guess they probably are, but his, his that's not the point. Silly. <laughs> 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 um, so at this, at this point, Tucker is going to talk about Facebook and Twitter and he misrepresents his ass off. So let's hear it. The tech companies announced early they would not allow anyone to criticize this vaccine, and anyone who did would be kicked off their platforms right away. And then corporate media took it upon themselves to enforce this rule. Just yesterday, CNN ran a story with this headline, quote, Facebook vowed to crack down on COVID-19 vaccine misinformation, 
but misleading posts remain easy to find. That's not a news story. That's an open call for censorship, and it worked. CNN identified a group on Facebook called COVID-19 Vaccine Injury Stories, and the group was exactly what it sounds like, people talking about their experiences with the vaccine. Last week, that group was in the top 20 groups on all of Facebook. Today, after the CNN piece came out, we searched for that group. We couldn't find it, even when we searched specifically for its name. Effectively, COVID-19 vaccine injury stories no longer exists. CNN shut them down, erased them. Instead, search for the word vaccine on Facebook and you will find a lot of material, exclusively material, that matches precisely the storyline approved by Melinda Gates and her fellow non-scientist billionaires. And the line is clear. You've heard it a million times. The COVID vaccine is morally good, period. Don't dare say anything else. So if your neighbor yeah. drops dead after getting the shot, keep it. <laughs> yeah, so I'd, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg uh, ran it by Melinda Gates, their, their policies first. I'd, oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure absolutely. They, As around speed dial. <laughs> this is so stupid. Um, so that page Tucker was complaining about their COVID-19 vaccine injury stories may not be up anymore. However, the page Vaccine Injury Stories is. Uh, and the first three posts on that page were exposed the condition of a teenager after COVID-19 vaccination. Share far and wide. 501 deaths plus 10,000 other injuries reported following COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, this vaccine makes me sad for humanity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So if Tucker wants rampant misinformation about the vaccine, he can still find it. He sure can. According to another user, quote, Twitter suspended me for saying that vaccines have known side effects, end quote, which of course they do. Physicians who develop vaccines concede that. But at the moment, you were not allowed to say it. The CDC's website lists side effects <laughs> of the COVID-19 vaccine as pain at injection site, tiredness, headache, muscle pain, chills, joint pain, and fever. Legitimate question. Do physicians develop vaccines? I thought that was like a chemist thing. It, yeah, I not, don't know. Not a super big deal, but like, I don't know. I feel like he's trying to. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend I know, but uh, it's certainly not what Tucker says. Facebook has long led the way in this kind of censorship. Last year, the company prohibited users from buying any advertisement that might discourage people from taking the vaccine or that might portray the new vaccines as, quote, unsafe or ineffective. Now, in the months since, tens of millions of Americans have been vaccinated, and most of them seem fine. On the other hand, scientists are now conceding, on the record, that the vaccine may trigger a fatal blood disorder in a small number of people. The New York Times wrote about it the other day. It's one of those stories you should save as a period piece for when the current darkness finally lifts and we can think and speak clearly again. Two of the people the New York Times what interviewed wouldn't even say? give them. <laughs> when the current darkness lifts, Tyler. Tucker's flexing his literary muscles there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the story he's talking about, uh, <laughs> the blood disease he mentioned is called immune thrombocytopenia, which I'm sure I just mispronounced, and I'm sorry to anyone with a medical degree listening. <laughs> um, the disease is essentially a, a lack of platelets, which is a component for blood clotting. More than 31 million people in the United States have received at least one dose of the vaccine, and 36 cases of this uh, blood disease have been reported after administer 
administration of the vaccine. Now, this may not necessarily be related. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, has to report any adverse health conditions that arise in anyone within a certain amount of time after they receive the vaccine. Um, so we th there's a good reason for doing it, like we need that data, but we end up with a lot of junk data in the mix as well. Whether or not that's what this is, that's a little up for debate. Officials with the Food and Drug Administration and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that they were looking into the reports, but so far rates of the condition of vaccinated people did not appear higher than the rates normally found in the U.S. population. Hematologists do concede that there might be a, a connection here with the vaccine. They said that cases after vaccination were likely to be exceedingly rare, possibly the result of an unknown predisposition in some people to react to the vaccine by development of an immune response that destroys their platelets. The disorder has occurred rarely in people who received other inoculations, particularly the, particularly the measles, mumps, rubella one. Quote, I think it's possible that there is an association, said Dr. James Bustle, a hematologist and professor emeritus at Weill Cornell Medicine, who has written more than 300 articles on the platelet disorder. He said in an interview, I'm assuming there's something that made the people who developed the rhombocytopenia susceptible, given what a tiny percentage of recipients they are. He added, having it happen after a vaccine is well known and has been seen with other vaccines. Why it happens, we don't know. So he's really making a mountain out of a molehill here. Is <laughs> um, It's not impossible that this is connected, but it's exceedingly rare. Out of tens of millions of vaccine doses, we have 36 cases, which, again, is consistent with what you would normally expect for this disorder. So next, Tucker brings on Glenn Greenwald. And uh, I didn't cut most of this interview just because Glenn mostly repeats the same shit Tucker's already said. But there is some worthwhile stuff at the end here. So let's listen to these two assholes. I'm, I'm worried that maybe paradoxically, their demand that you believe what they say will result in millions of Americans not believing what anybody says. This will have an effect on people's faith in knowable truth. It'll have an effect on their mental health. It will make people crazy. That's my concern. <laughs> Well, no, and I, I think that's valid. You know, I agree. I have the same view as you do, which is when the vaccine is available where I live, I'm going to get it. My family's going to take it as well, because the reason I'm, I'm, I'm convinced, not that it's clearly true, but probably the best course for me and my family is because I informed myself. I used the free and open Internet to look at what experts were saying. I sought out dissenting opinion, and I was convinced that the consensus was probably right, that taking the vaccine was the best thing to do. But if the Internet were a place where no dissent were allowed, I would have way less confidence in that right. ability, because that would mean this is a profession that isn't confident enough to allow dissent. And if they're not confident enough to allow dissent, I think that they earn much less trust and faith in their pronouncements. Yes, I think it's a really wise observation. So I have to ask. It's a really wise observation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, super wise. Um. I feel like anyone listening to this podcast doesn't need this explained to them, but dissent against facts is lies. <laughs> yeah, that's a much more succinct version of what I was about to say. <laughs> and 
at the beginning there, Tucker, just, I'm worried that this is going to hurt people's ability to trust knowable truth. That's what you do for a living, you asshole. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And they're playing a really annoying game here where it's like, oh, I'm going to get the vaccine. I'm just asking questions. I did my research. Like, he I, I w- said, he said, I specifically sought out dissenting opinions. I didn't, he, he didn't go out to try to find the truth. He's like, this is the truth. I need to find something that isn't that so that I can continue to believe my stupid asshole beliefs. <laughs> yeah, and I would argue, Glenn Greenwald, that if there were a shit ton of rampant misinformation all strewn all over the internet, it might be harder for you to reach the correct conclusion from your research. They're complaining about censorship here, and it it's just misdirection. We don't need to talk about how social media companies are private entities that, that do have the right under the Constitution to impose what is and isn't on their platform. But even if they were subject to free speech, there are still uh, well-precedented limitations. The classic example, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. In the middle of a pandemic, spreading lies about the safety and efficacy of a vaccine is very akin to yelling fire in a crowded theater, and there is good reason to make sure that if somebody is going to be spewing nonsense on a big platform, that's at least not entirely untrue. In any case, vaccine injury stories is still up on Facebook, so they're doing a bad job of that anyway, and Tucker's complaints are stupid. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, So that's all we're going to talk about the vaccine. That's the good news. The bad news is what Tucker wants to talk about next. So Planned Parenthood makes a ton of money from abortion. Now they have a new plan. (laughs) They're getting involved in transitioning people's genders. Planned Parenthood, the very center of that debate. Abigail Schreier is here to explain their role straight ahead. Yeah. (laughs) I thought we were going to go into something nicer, but no. Serves me right. Before we even get into his narrative here, I want to address up front his claim that Planned Parenthood makes a ton of money off abortions. Planned Parenthood is a 501c3, so their financial information is available to the public. The most recent financial report is from fiscal year 2019. For 2019, Planned Parenthood reported $63.2 million in revenue. Of that, $60 million was from private contributions, fundraising, and bequests. Only $2.7 million it was operating revenue. Uh, Planned Parenthood gives a lot of their services at free and discounted costs. And I personally got uh, free condoms from Planned Parenthood in 2019. So I probably contributed to that on some level. They aren't making a ton of money from any of their services. They aren't even breaking even. That being said, if we dig further into that report... Uh, 52% of the services that Planned Parenthood provided in 2019 were for STI testing and treatment, 23% were providing contraception, 13% were women's health services, 6% were cancer screenings and prevention, only 3% of services provided were abortions. Uh, so the provision of their services in general is a pretty small portion of their revenue, and abortions are the smallest portion of that. Tucker is just lying. So then we are going to get into his broader narrative here that Planned Parenthood now needs to make money off of transitioning transgender youth. Uh, So 
Let's get started. Planned Parenthood is America's number one provider of abortions, but pregnancy rates are declining dramatically. So now Planned Parenthood has another revenue stream, kids who identify as transgender. One Planned Parenthood employee put it this way very bluntly, quote, trans-identifying kids are cash cows and they're kept on the hook in terms of follow-up appointments, blood work, meetings, etc. whereas abortions hopefully are a one-and-done situation. I thought you might want to know about this. Abigail Schreier knows a lot about it. She's the... Yeah. Um, so Tucker has Abigail Schreier on to talk about this. She wrote the book Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze That's Coming for Our Girl or Daughters. Oh, yeah, that you, you, book. You've heard of this book? I have heard of this book. It's a real bad book. <laughs> I don't doubt it for a second, Troy. Yeah, we're going to talk about it, but first, I... So, Tucker's point at the beginning there, that Planned Parenthood needs to make money off of this now because abortions are declining. Uh, abortions are declining specifically because of the efforts of Planned Parenthood to Im improve sex education and provide contraception. So, if his argument is that their goal is to make a bunch of money, they're doing a really shitty job of it. Now, that quote from the Planned Parenthood employee about how trans-identifying kids are cash cows... Tucker doesn't say where that quote comes from, so I tracked it down. He never says this, but that quote is from Abigail Schreier's blog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she claims an anonymous Twitter user reached out to her and provided her that story. This Twitter user was an ex-Planned Parenthood employee. Now, I don't have any evidence that the story is untrue, but there are reasons to be skeptical. For example... Uh, the Twitter user claims that they worked at a small Planned Parenthood office in a town of about 30,000 people. They also claim, however, that every day one or two, ki two trans-identifying kids walked in to get hormone therapy. No, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, if you just do the math, that quickly becomes a absurdly high percentage of the population. Um, furthermore, this person isn't even claiming to be a high-level Planned Parenthood employee. They're claiming that they used to work at the front desk receptionist. So they aren't going to have, I'm guessing, detailed information about Planned Parenthood's financial details or uh, their targets for profiting off of transgender youth cash cows. <laughs> and if I did have this information, I wouldn't send it in a Twitter post to Abigail Schreier. Um, but that's just me. You know, I, I agree. I don't think I would do that either. Now. Let's talk about Planned Parenthood's actual practices. Planned Parenthood, as a general rule, only provides gender-affirming hormone therapy to patients 18 and over. There are certain states that permit persons under 18 to receive hormone therapy with parental consent. In those states, certain Planned Parenthood offices may provide the service, but only if the parent or legal guardian is present at the consultation. So, now we're going to listen to Abigail Schreier's interview, and I'm sorry. Hi, Abigail, thanks for coming on. Planned Thanks, Parenthood Martin. is involved. Outline this for us, if you would. Sure. In the last decades, you know, there, as you said, the rates of abortion have plummeted in America to the lowest they've been since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was decided. So Planned Parenthood, which has a, you know, large infrastructure to support, has found a second revenue stream that is incredibly lucrative. As you said, these, these young girls become lifetime patients. Once you medically transition, you become a lifetime patient, and the drugs are extremely expensive. Ah. Uh. So Planned Parenthood takes a huge amount of federal money. Does any of that money wind up uh, in, in, as part of this revenue stream? 
I, I don't know, um, but I can tell you that you know this is something that has gone from you know twenty six clinics were were providing testosterone and Planned Parenthood clinics were providing testosterone only five years ago. Now two hundred and ten Planned Parenthood clinics provide testosterone, so it is clearly very big business for them. And they claim on their website to be the second largest provider of hormone treatments for trans identified people. So we spend a lot of time talking about the trans question. We're lectured a lot about it. I think most people, including me, have very little idea of what it means medically. You said that this is a, a long-term commitment between the patient and, and the healthcare provider. What, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, to maintain the effects of something like testosterone, you need to stay on it. Otherwise, you will end up in this in-between looking state. For a woman to, to maintain the effects, the secondary sex characteristics of a man, she needs to stay on massive, massive dosage. Now, that doesn't mean that it, some of the effects aren't permanent. Many of them are. But she still has to maintain that appearance, and she has to keep coming in for checkups to look at her blood levels. Now, that said, very often these teenagers who come in at 18 and, yes, far below 18, depending on the state— uh, to a Planned Parenthood clinic, very often they never see a doctor. Okay, so that was a lot. It, it was a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try to unpack most of that step by step. So let's start with her. That what she just threw out there that yes, much younger than 18. Um, there is not a clinic in the country that provides gender affirmation hormone therapy to anyone who has not yet undergone puberty. So not that much below 18. She's using very imprecise language here. Hormone therapy is a lifelong commitment, but you don't need to have massive, massive doses all the time. That's just a lie. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Ms. Schreier's book. In Psychology Today, uh, Dr. Jack Turbin wrote a pretty good article titled Irreversible Damages Full of Misinformation. For example... Schreier claims that in nearly 70% of cases, gender dysphoria resolves, and thus youth should not be provided gender-affirming medical care. That statistic is false. Schreier incorrectly uses the statistic to claim that trans youth shouldn't be offered gender-affirming medical interventions because most will change their minds and later regret their decision. These studies Schreier refers to use, the, use an old diagnosis called gender identity disorder, not the DSM-5 diagnosis of gender dysphoria. The reason this is a problem is that one can meet this diagnosis without being transgender. The old criteria largely focused on gender expression. Think a tomboy or a cisgender boy who likes feminine toys. Those kids aren't transgender, so it's not surprising that most of them weren't transgender at follow-up. This problem with the gender identity disorder diagnosis from the DSM-4 was fixed for the DSM-5. Furthermore, those studies were a very young, prepubertal children. Under the current medical consensus, gender-affirming medical interventions are not offered to pre-pubertal -pre youth. They are only offered after youth have reached adolescence. Once youth reach adolescence, it's rare for transgender youth to later decide that they are cisgender. Shocking. <laughs> right? I know. I personally am blown away. <laughs> Furthermore, Schreier did not interview most of the transgender adolescents she wrote about. In the book, she tells the stories of several young people who came out as transgender to their parents and paints them as being confused. However, the author's note points out that she only interviewed their parents, who uniformly did not accept their children's identities. Many of them were estranged from their kids because the children were hurt by their parents' rejection. To actually understand the psychology of these young people, one would need to talk to them, not simply rely on stories from their parents to whom they do not speak. 
To make things worse, the author's note explains that Schreier changed details in the book to ensure that transgender people she wrote about would not be able to recognize themselves. In doing so, she ensured they could not provide their side of the story or point out any inaccuracies in her reporting. Schreier consistently claims that she is apolitical, just a neutral investigative journalist. However, the publisher of Irreversible Damage is called Regnery Publishing. Regnery calls itself America's leading publisher of conservative books. Some of its other published titles include The Biden Deception, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction, No Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You, and oh my The Great God. Destroyer, Barack Obama's War on the Republic. Its authors include such esteemed names as Ann Coulter, Dinesh D'Souza, Dennis Prager, Sean Spicer, and Sebastian Gorka, who, and I'm not just saying this, is literally a fucking Nazi. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, uh... She's apolitical, though. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that list of authors was a veritable who's who of uh, people destroying the country. Uh, and Sean Spicer. So that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> he destroyed the country for a while, and then he got fired and replaced with Anthony Scaramucci. <laughs> he wasn't good at destroying the country. <laughs> He got fired for not destroying the country enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's all we're going to talk about Abigail Schreier. Um, Tucker is right. He doesn't know much about the medical side of this. Maybe he shouldn't be talking about it. Agreed. So then that ends Tuesday's episode and it brings us to the final episode that we're going to cover, uh, which was the February 11th show. And this one is a doozy. I'm just going to let Tucker introduce his thesis here in the first clip. It's funny how change happens. You thought the big change came on election day. That's when the incumbent president lost. But that turned out to be nothing compared to the change that came two months later. On January 6th, supporters of Donald Trump swarmed the Capitol building. Some forced their way inside. And Washington has never been the same. It may never be the same. As a result of what happened on January 6th, your descendants will live in a very different country. It was a pivot point in our history, looking back. Some in Congress have compared that day to 9-11. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has likened it to Pearl Harbor, the day that spurred America's entry into the Second World War. Every day we hear new and more florid comparisons from Democratic partisans. But last night, CNN outdid all of them. Chernobyl? The Bhopal disaster? The Irish potato famine? No. What happened on January 6th was worse than any of that. It was, CNN told us, very much like the Rwandan genocide. The idea of otherizing people is something I think we saw a lot of over the last four years. I mean, something we've seen a lot over the last decades, but it's so easy to otherize people, to make people other than, other than American, other than patriotic, other than, than human, you know, and we've seen it in Bosnia, we've seen it in Rwanda, where radio was telling people that, you know, Hutus were telling the radio listeners that Tutsi were cockroaches for, you know, to getting them ginned up for genocide. The Rwanda. Yeah, so this is uh, another installment in Tucker's storied tradition of playing a clip and then pretending that a person said something they didn't say. Um, Anderson Cooper wasn't saying so much in that clip that what happened at the Capitol on January 6th was like the Rwandan genocide, as he was saying uh, it's bad to otherize people um, because that leads to violence. So that's what, for example, he said we saw a lot of in the last four years. Um 
you might say, on Tucker's show, <laughs> and uh, specifically in the last couple of months, with the other side is trying to steal the election, you should go storm the Capitol. Now, Tucker is really upset that Anderson Cooper compared what happened to the Rwandan genocide. So that makes his, uh, his next point here a little bit confusing. The Rwandan genocide, that's what it was like. Keep in mind that close to a million people were murdered in Rwanda in 1994. That's about 70% of all ethnic Tutsis in the country. Entire towns were hacked to death with machetes. They were set on fire, crushed alive by bulldozers. Hundreds of thousands of women were raped. It was among the most horrifying crimes in human history. How does a country recover from something like that, from a genocide? Well, first, obviously, you punish the guilty quickly and severely. In our case, you impeach him. But then, and this is more important, you set about reordering your society from top to bottom to make certain nothing like that ever happens again. So you purge the military. You suspend basic civil liberties. To emphasize the point, you send troops to the capital. You tear down the old. You destroy all vestiges of the past in order to save the future. That's what's going on now. Yeah. Uh, Troy, did Tucker Carlson just say something that I agree with? Because um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that to happen. <laughs> yeah, it, don't don't worry. It's a straw man. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what bothered me here, Tucker is furious that Anderson Cooper supposedly compared what happened to the Rwandan genocide, right? Tucker then talks about the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide and says that's what's happening now. Uh, he's doing what he just bitched about 10 seconds ago. It's absurd. <sighs> so yeah, in this next clip, Tucker gives us some more clues about how he's going to spin this story. Four of the five who died that day were Trump supporters. The fifth was a Capitol Hill police officer who apparently also supported Donald Trump. Why is this relevant? Of course, the political views of the deceased shouldn't matter. But unfortunately, in this case, they do. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and many other elected Democrats claim the mob was coming for them that day. Yet the only recorded casualties on January 6th were people who voted for Donald Trump. <sighs> yeah. Um, so, for one, it's not really a claim, <laughs> the way he's phrasing it, that the mob was coming for them when there were text messages of people coordinating where different lawmakers were hiding and where to find them. But what Tucker is about to do, he's going to list off the people who died that day and uh, explain how they died. Now, he's playing a delicate game here. He he holds pretty close to the truth because he knows he can't safely deviate from it too much without backlash. Um, but on the specifics, he distorts things in some pretty important ways. So, uh, first he's going to talk about Roseanne Boyland. This is the woman who uh, she was trampled to death as the mob stormed the Capitol. The way Tucker talks about this, he he isn't lying, but, well, y you'll hear. You'll hear what he's doing. The first among them was the 34-year-old woman from Georgia called Roseanne Boyland. Authorities first announced that Boyland died of a, quote, medical emergency. Later video footage suggested she may have accidentally been trampled by the crowd. We're still not sure that's the best guess. So there's video footage in which Roseanne Boyland was trampled. Um, furthermore, she was there with her friend by the name of Justin Winchell. Uh, Winchell later told reporters that she was trampled to death in a massive crowd surge when protesters clashed with Capitol Police. Quote, 
I got my arm underneath her that was pulling her out, pulling her out, and then another guy fell on top of her, and, and another guy was just walking over her, he said. I mean, there was people crushed. So, while authorities have not reported an official cause of death, we can pretty reasonably assume that this is what happened, and Tucker is casting more doubt on it than it deserves, trying to muddy the waters, because it's, it's, it's to his benefit when people feel uncertain about what happened here or, like, they can't trust the narrative. Next, uh, Tucker's going to talk about Kevin Greeson. Uh, this one, he's essentially accurate. There's not a ton here, but let's hear what Tucker has to say. The second casualty was 55-year-old Kevin Greeson. Greeson died of heart failure while talking to his wife on a cell phone outside the Capitol. Quote, Kevin had a history of high blood pressure, his wife later said, and in the midst of the excitement, he suffered a heart attack, end quote. Yeah, so there were some reports that he accidentally tased himself and that triggered the heart attack. Uh, I can't find any evidence of that. It seems to just be rumors, so... Um, yeah, t Tucker is pretty accurate here. Guy yeah, just had a heart attack. That would be much more fun, to be fair, if he had tased himself. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up is Benjamin Phillips. Uh, Mr. Phillips organized several bus trips to the Capitol that day. He was a fervent Trump supporter and um, did some advocacy to make sure people had rides to the protest. He also founded a website called Trumparoo, which isn't important. I just think the name is hilarious. <laughs> the third was 50-year-old Benjamin Phillips of Ringtown, Pennsylvania. Phillips was a Trump supporter who organized a bus trip to Washington for the rally that day. He died of a stroke on the grounds of the Capitol. Yes, yeah, so uh, it, nothing to object there. But now we got to talk about Ashley Babbitt. This is the woman who was shot trying to crawl in through a window at the Capitol building. Um, there's video of her being shot, so this is the one that people talk about the most. So let's jump in. The fourth, fourth person to die, the only person to die that day of intentional violence, was 35-year-old Ashley Babbitt, a military veteran from San Diego. Babbitt was wearing a Trump cape when she was shot to death by a Capitol Hill police lieutenant. Babbitt's death was caught on video, so hers is the best documented death that took place that day. And yet it is surprising how little we know about it. Babbitt was shot as she tried to crawl through a broken window into the speaker's lobby within the Capitol. And that's essentially the extent of what we know. Authorities have refused to release the name of the man who shot her or divulge any details of the investigation they say they've done. We may never know exactly why this unnamed Capitol Hill police officer took her life. According to that officer's attorney, quote, there is no way to look at the evidence and think that he is anything but a hero. Of course, we can't actually look at that evidence because they're withholding it. We can't even know his identity. Killing an unarmed woman may be justified under certain specific circumstances. But since when is it, quote, heroic when the dead woman has read QAnon websites? Republicans aren't asking that question. One Republican member of Congress from Oklahoma says he immediately hugged the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt. You did what you had to do, the congressman said. But did the officer really have to do that? We don't know. It would be nice to know. Maybe someone could ask. So some people have asked. Uh, in particular, there, the Justice Department deployed investigators to look into Ashley Babbitt's death. Those investigators have made an initial determination that charges against the officer who shot her aren't warranted. They added that Justice Department officials haven't yet made a final determination on the matter. Tucker is upset that we haven't th that more details about this have been released, but that's how ongoing investigations work. 
a Justice Department spokeswoman had no immediate comment. Any final charging decisions would likely have to be approved by senior Justice Department leadership who haven't yet been briefed on the matter. And finally, uh, we have Officer Brian Sicknick. Oh, nope. Before we get to Sicknick, we have uh, Tucker has a little bit more bullshit to say about. Uh, well, yeah, just listen. We do know that Ashley Babbitt was not holding a weapon when she was killed. Nevertheless, at the impeachment hearing this week, Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island described what happened at the Capitol as, quote, an armed insurrection. Watch. He incited an armed, angry mob to riot. On inciting an armed insurrection against the United States government, an armed, angry, and dangerous crowd, armed violence against the government of the United States of America. David Cicilline is a former mafia lawyer from Providence, so presumably he knows what it is to commit a felony with a firearm. Doubtless he does. There are no reports of rioters at the Capitol building that day discharging weapons or threatening anyone with a gun. So what exactly is David Cicilline talking about? What? (laughs) So because Ashley Babbitt didn't have a gun, it wasn't an armed insurrection? Yeah, that's what he's trying to spin here, which you correctly point out is absurd. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I have to address that line he threw out about David Cicilline being a former mafia lawyer. Uh, I I looked into that a bit because I couldn't not. Um, David Cicilline's father was, in fact, a mafia lawyer. Um, And his brother, also a lawyer, was indicted in 2007 for, for involvement with a marijuana smuggling operation. However, I can find no evidence that David Cicilline was never involved in any of those activities. Tucker is just making that up. <laughs> now, his conceit that uh, there weren't threats of armed violence here, it, it's patently false. For example, Kevin Greeson, who, the one who died of a heart attack. On December 17th, Kevin Greeson posted on Parler about his plans to attend the Capitol riot, stating... I have guns and ammo. Let's take this fucking country back. Load your guns and take to the streets. On the website The Donald, prior to the riots, moderators of the forum promoted a post that said, Travel in packs and do not let them disarm someone without stacking bodies. Uh, Eric Munchel, who Twitter quickly dubbed Zip Tie Guy because he was photographed inside the Capitol with ASR tactical zip tie handcuffs, which are made of 400-pound tensile-strength nylon and meet law enforcement and military standards for apprehension. Um, you don't bring those without planning to restrain some people. Right. Uh, Lynn Wood, former Trump lawyer's post directly calling for civil war prior to the riots, has retweeted about 20,000 times. As I mentioned before, there have been text messages uncovered, um, of rioters coordinating where different Democratic lawmakers were hiding and where they could uh, find them. And of course, the protesters were chanting, hang at Mike Pence. So I think it's fair to say there were threats of violence and Tucker is full of shit when he says otherwise. Indeed. Now we're on to Officer Brian Sicknick. Well, apparently he's referring to the death of Officer Brian Sicknick. In the hours after the riot, the New York Times reported that Trump supporters had brutally beaten Officer Sicknick to death with a fire extinguisher. The fire extinguisher, apparently, is the deadly weapon, the armed in the armed insurrection. Now, the news of Sicknick's death by violence was quickly picked up by countless other media outlets. Cable television anchors repeated and then amplified it. But in fact, the story they told was a lie from beginning to end. 
Officer Sicknick was not beaten to death, not with a fire extinguisher, not with anything else. According to an exhaustive and fascinating new analysis on Revolver News, there's no evidence that Brian Sicknick was hit with a fire extinguisher at any point during the day. None. No video. Nothing. The officer's body apparently bore no signs of trauma. In fact, on the night of January 6th, long after rioters at the Capitol had been arrested or dispersed, Brian Sicknick texted his brother from his office. According to his brother, Sicknick said he'd been, quote, pepper sprayed twice and he was in good shape. 24 hours later, Officer Brian Sicknick was dead. How did Officer Sicknick die? The head of the Capitol Police Union has said he had a stroke, no cause given. More than that, we still don't know. Sicknick's body was cremated immediately. Authorities have refused to release his autopsy. No one has been charged in his death. No charges are pending. Whatever happened to Brian Sicknick was tragic, obviously, but it was also very different from what they have told us. They have lied about how he died. They've lied about a lot. Who is Revolver News? <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, a magazine. If I'm not mistaken, they mostly cover music, but don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Tucker is correct, sort of. Initially, it was reported that Officer Ryan Signick had been beaten with a fire extinguisher. Uh, however... Further investigation that seems to indicate that that reporting was incorrect, and that story has since been retracted by most outlets that reported it. The exact cause of death has not yet been released. There is speculation that it may involve a reaction to Officer Signick's exposure to both pepper spray and bear spray, which causes inflammation and potentially could have increased risk of stroke. Bear spray in particular has a very wide uh, spray pattern. It's meant to cover a large area. So anyone who was there was likely breathing a lot of it if it was sprayed. So someone who might have other predilections towards stroke risk, that's a, a big danger for them. Now, we don't know that that's what happened yet. Tucker is right. There's still a lot we don't know. And he's taking advantage of that, trying to muddy the waters and cast doubt on the narrative because it benefits him when his listeners only trust him. Now Tucker wants to talk about whether or not this was a conspiracy. They've lied about a lot. For example, how did this riot start? Was it a spontaneous event incited by a reckless president on his way out in a fit of vicious peak? That's one version of the story. Or was the riot long planned? Was it a conspiracy? That's another version of the story. Both cannot be true. This weekend, the former chief of the Capitol Hill Police, Stephen Sund, claimed in a letter to Nancy Pelosi that there was no intelligence suggesting that a riot might be imminent at the Capitol. Apparently, the Washington Post has better sources than Chief Sun does. Days after January 6th, the newspaper reported that it was well known that a group of Trump supporters was headed to the city to cause trouble. The FBI almost certainly knew this. The feds likely had paid informers in the ranks of protesters. One of the rioters, we learned this yesterday, was a former FBI employee. Was he still on the FBI payroll? He wouldn't be the first. So if the authorities knew that violence might be coming to the Capitol, where was the necessary security? It wasn't there. In fact, the response of law enforcement on the scene that day is baffling the more deeply you look into it. In some publicly available videos, Capitol Hill police seem to be all but inviting rioters into the building. So he's right. The response of law enforcement was baffling. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. But his assertion that uh, was it a conspiracy or was it a spontaneous event incited by an angry president? Both can't be true is a misdirection. Uh, 
the truth is kind of for the way that things happened, both had to be true. There were months of conspiracies that the election was stolen, lies about voter fraud, allegations, and uh, calls to violence circulating in dark parts of the web. Trump's refusal to temper these flames and his rally that day uh, encouraging supporters to show up at the Capitol was in fact what Tucker might call a vidificious peak that uh, exacerbated the situation and brought things to a boiling point. Uh, his complaints of law enforcement letting people into the building are valid. That is absurd. Especially when you consider that over the summer, there were over 1,000 documented instances of police brutality against Black Lives Matter protesters. Notable examples include 75-year-old Martin Gugino, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, at a protest in Buffalo, New York, video showed two police officers shoving Gugino from the sidewalk where he had been standing. Blood immediately begins pouring from his skull. Gugino sustained a brain injury and was not, unable to walk for nearly two weeks. Overall, he was hospitalized for four weeks from the injury. Uh, police did not behave that way at the Capitol riots. There might have been some kind of difference there that caused that, but I can't think of what it would be. Yeah, I can't imagine anything that, that was different between the Trump supporters and the Black Lives Matter protesters. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Tucker has a bit of a different take on the BLM protests, though. The question is, why would they lie about this? For an answer, think back to last spring. Beginning of Memorial Day, BLM and their sponsors in corporate America completely changed this country. They changed this country more in five months than it had changed in the previous 50 years. How'd they do that? They used the sad death of a man called George Floyd to upend our society. Months later, we learned that the story they told us about George Floyd's death was an utter lie. There was no physical evidence that George Floyd was murdered by a cop. The autopsy showed that George Floyd almost certainly died of a drug overdose, fentanyl. But by that point, facts didn't matter. It was too late. Cities had been destroyed along with the fabric of this country itself. Scores of people had been killed. Democratic partisans used a carefully concocted myth, a lie, to bum rush America into overturning the old order and handing them much more power. It worked flawlessly. So why wouldn't they do it again? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah, so um, I just want to point out that uh, Tucker pointing out that the BLM protests changed this country more than it's changed in 50 years. That timeline puts us right around the end of the civil rights movement. So interesting that he picked that uh, frame. He he talks about George Floyd dying of a fentanyl overdose, and this is a blatant lie. Floyd, 46, died in Minneapolis, Minnesota at 9.25 p.m. Central Time on May 25th, 2020, after police officer Derek Chauvin pressed his knee down on the back of his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. The Hennepin County Medical Examiner, HCME, said that the cause of death was cardiopulmonary arrest complicating law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. It continued to list arteriosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease, fentanyl intoxication, and recent methamphetamine use as being significant conditions that were underlying. Medical examiners said that the fentanyl levels were at potentially fatal level, but that it was a combination of factors that led to Floyd's death. A private autopsy ordered by Floyd's family disputed the findings of the HCME, 
and concluded his death was by homicide caused by asphyxia due to neck and back compression that led to the lack of blood flow to the brain. The HCME did list drug use as being a factor that could have contributed to the death of George Floyd, but it reported that neck compression and cardiopulmonary arrest played a larger role in his death. Both the HCME and the family-ordered autopsies ruled homicide as the cause of death. Neither report claims that Floyd died of drugs or pre-existing conditions, but instead that his heart stopped and the cause of death was restraint. Every time that George Floyd comes back into my thoughts, and I am reminded just how long 8 minutes and 46 seconds is, and how torturous of a time that would be to not be able to breathe is just chilling and it's just there aren't words for how angry it makes me it's horrific that people like tucker carlson are going around saying no he probably died from drugs because he's a bad guy and he deserved to die yeah, and this goes to, like, you hear all the time from these people, well, he was a criminal. I don't give a fuck what he did. He didn't deserve to be murdered. That's not how this is supposed to work. Now, and Tucker lying about this is really gross and blatant, and it makes me angry. Um, but luckily, we're done with the story now. Thank God. <laughs> um, after this, Tucker wants to talk about fucking Mark Cuban. And I don't give a shit. I refuse to cover it. Um, he's mad that Mark Cuban, I guess, whatever sports team he owns, uh, they're not going to play the National Anthem before games anymore. Tucker dedicates quite a bit of time to this story, and uh, I'm not going to cover it at all, because it doesn't matter. Except for, I do have to give Tucker credit. Uh, he is fair and balanced. Uh, just TMCR. Listen- <laughs> Just listen to how he uh, extends an olive branch to Cuban at the end of this. Of course, Mark Cuban and any other decadent moron like him is always invited on this show to explain his point of view. Come on, decadent moron Mark Cuban, explain your point of view. (sighs) Fun times ahead. Now we get to talk about the minimum wage. Uh, All right, let's go. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's a nice palate cleanser, right? After lying about murder. (laughs) I mean, a $7 minimum wage is just longer, slower murder, right? (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Longer than 8 minutes and 46 seconds, even. Somehow. So, let's go. Joe Biden is pushing to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. That may help some of the people who get raised wages. It will definitely hurt others. According to the Congressional Budget Office, a $15 minimum wage would eliminate almost a million and a half jobs and increase the federal deficit dramatically. Neil Patel has thought a lot about this topic. He wrote a column about it for the Boston Herald. He's the publisher of The Daily Caller. He joins us tonight to assess. Neil, thanks a lot for coming on. So economic arguments aside, it does seem like the minimum wage is, is popular in general with the public, and this is likely to happen given who controls Congress. Given that, What's the wise way, do you think, to raise the minimum wage? Tucker, uh, thanks for having me. If if you're going to have a minimum wage, it doesn't make any sense to have it the same in every location in America. 
It costs more than twice as much to live in Manhattan as it does in a small town in Kansas. And there's there's no earthly reason both those places should have the same minimum wage. Uh, similarly, hmm. it doesn't make any sense to have the same minimum wage for huge multinational companies with thousands of employees uh, and billions of dollars in profits as it does for, say, the deli on the corner uh, of your block uh, at home. The deli owner's probably working in his own store. He may want a few hours off in the afternoon and bring in a high school kid. The concept of a, the left's concept of a liv- livable wage, I think it, it, it's much easier to apply that to a Walmart or a Target uh, than it is to the deli guy. And yet we don't. We have one minimum wage applying in every place for every business. It makes zero sense. It's kind of what a minimum is. It, yeah, like... Okay. Just because the living expenses in California and Kansas are different doesn't mean that you can't say this is the baseline for anywhere in the country and other, and other states can build off of that. That's already happening. Like, m- most places in California pay $15 an hour, I think, yeah. um, because their cost of living is so ridiculously high. Yeah, this is really dumb, and uh, it's something I used to believe when I was in high school. Um, I'm pretty sure I once wrote a paper about how we should have a regional minimum wage. Um, Here's why that is bullshit. The most sophisticated research we have on the minimum wage comes from a 2019 study by researchers from the University of Massachusetts, University College of London, and the Economic Policy Institute. They looked at the effect of 138 different state-level minimum wage increases— between 1979 and 2016. They found that the overall number of low-wage jobs remained essentially unchanged in a five-year period following the wage increases. Uh, So essentially, they looked at 138 instances of minimum wage increases and found that there was no significant impact on uh, the job market. And that makes sense if you think about it for more than two minutes, because if more people have more disposable income, they have more money to spend at businesses. Yeah. Crazy how that works. There's more research on why a regional minimum wage is stupid, though. This is from the Economic Policy Institute. Quote, It is true that states and sub-state areas have varying wage and price levels, and there are times when policies should take those differences into account. The good news is regional wage differences are far smaller today than in past decades. This means implementing a more livable national minimum wage is easier now than for previous generations. Regional differences in wage levels have been radically reduced over the last 50 years. In particular, wages in the South have moved much closer to the national norm. We examined the convergence in a 2015 paper by comparing the the median wage in states to the national median. In 1968... 13 states, almost all in the South, had wages at least 10% below the national median. Four states, all Southern, had wages more than 20% below the national median. By 2013, only two states had wages more than 10% below the median, Arkansas and Oklahoma. And no state had wages more than 20% below the median. In other words, wage differences across the country have closed dramatically. In particular, southern states have much higher wages relative to the, natu- to the national average than they did 40 years ago. This convergence in wages should give confidence to policymakers considering a universal $15 minimum wage floor. Researchers at Harvard and Berkeley found that in 1968, when federal lawmakers raised the minimum wage to its highest inflation-adjusted level ever, 
and expanded the coverage of the law to include sectors that were disproportionately staffed by black workers. It lifted wages to the lowest it lifted wages of the lowest wage workers, especially black workers, without any adverse effect on employment at a time when regional wage differences were far larger than they are today. But Tucker has a bit of a a, d- a different reaction than I do. It's such a smart point that I've heard from nobody else. $30 minimum wage for Amazon warehouse workers. No minimum wage for the dry cleaner on your block. I love that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> also, people who work in Amazon should make $30 an hour. Agreed. Like, it is unfathomable how much money Jeff Bezos make. I think in 2020... He made $3,700 every second. Holy shit. It's, it is, unf- and he can't afford to pay, you can't see me making finger quotes, he can't <laughs> afford to pay his workers a living wage is bullshit. It's garbage. Yeah, it, it's absurd. And the idea of basing the wage on the empl- on the employer is dumb because, like, if a small business doesn't have to pay me a minimum wage and a large business does, why the fuck am I going to go work for the small business? Tucker is also ignoring it, the racial disparity impact this would have, you might argue, willfully ignoring it. Low-wage workers are disproportionately, and especially small business workers, disproportionately are minorities and women. So he's talking about here a policy that would keep their wages artificially low. Tucker's reaction to the the idea of this regional minimum wage, he's like, I've never heard anyone talk about that before. It, like I said, this is something I believed in high school. Uh, I was not doing deep research at that point. This is an idea that's been in the air in libertarian circles for a while. The fact that it's brand new to Tucker, despite him claiming to have been in journalism for 25 years, shows how little interest he actually has in policy uh, he just wants to traffic in this outrage-mongering cult- culture war bullshit. So that brings us to the end of the minimum wage discussion. And we have one more big narrative to get through. This one is a doozy. Um, to be honest, this is some of the most disgusting shit in the world. And I wish we didn't have to end on it, but we live in the world we live in. So, let's hear Tucker introduce his final thesis of the night. Cases of sexual violence against women appear to be rising rapidly in many parts of Europe in measurable ways. Why is this happening? Ion Hercieli, our old friend, is one of the very few people who seems to be trying to understand why. She's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of the new book, Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. She joins us tonight to explain. Ayan, thanks so much for coming on. So is this happening? Do we know for a fact it's happening? And if we do, then why do you think it's happening? It's happening because the people who are elected to manage immigration in Europe have failed to do that. Um, Elected officials have pretended that they were managing immigration, but they weren't. Um, There are uh, large numbers of people that are coming from the Middle East, from Africa, from South Asia. Uh, Most of them are young men. And when they come to Europe, um, they behave in exactly the same ways that they behave towards their own women. So that's enough of that. Um, Oh, he actually had someone come on his show to be like, Muslims are coming to rape your wives. 
Yeah, it, it this is this is absurd. Oh my god. <laughs> Why is this on cable? Yeah. So and they 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 roll around in the mud on this for a while, but I'm not going to play the rest of the clip. You 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 get the point they're trying to make. It's that uh brown people are going to come rape you. Um we need to close borders. It's it's stupid. So they talk a lot about for example the rape rate in Sweden increasing in the last couple of years. It is true that Sweden's rate of rape cases has increased by 75% in the last two years. The reason for that is because Sweden changed the legal definition of rape two years ago. Ah. (laughs) Previously, uh, rape was defined by Sweden's legal code as specifically forceful vaginal penetration. They've since updated the statute to define rape as non-consensual sexual contact. That's a much better definition, if I do say so myself. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. Um, so naturally, a lot more rape cases are being reported because a lot more things now count as rape. This has nothing, nothing to do with immigration. They're just fear-mongering and want to equate sexual violence with immigration rates because they want to make, make you scared of brown people. Uh, now, even there, even trying to tie it to increased immigration rates is a misdirection. This is from some reporting in Reason, which is a conservative-leaning publication, but th- they actually had some really good reporting on this. While a severe migrant uptick did occur circa 2015, the influx rapidly declined to earlier levels. As economist Brian Kaplan has noted, total arrivals from 2014 to 2018 came to less than 1% of the population of the European Union. Many European countries, most notably West Germany during the Cold War, have swiftly absorbed much larger inflows in the past. By early 2019, the European Commission officially declared an end to the migration crisis. For a sense of the scope of how much this is bullshit, let's look specifically at Germany, uh, Reasons reporter Michael Zigismund writes, For a sense of the scope of the fake scare, visit hoaxmap.org, an internet project constructed in 2016 to track rumors about refugees in Germany. The map currently features 496 rumors in the country and is nearby German-speaking nations. In early 2018, the German paper Der Spiegel ran its own study of 445 alleged refugee rapes in 10 German states as reported on the website ratefugees.net. One-third of those incidents were filtered out because they were duplicates, broken links, or law enforcement was unaware of the purported crime. Of the remaining 291 cases, 24 claims were false, others were less dramatic than rape, i.e. groping, and 29% of cases could not be confirmed or denied. One-third, 95 involved refugee suspects. Of 57 actual rape cases, 26 involved refugee suspects, with 18 cases resulting in convictions. Each incident is serious and to be condemned, but the facts don't support fears of epidemic levels of social decay. This rhetoric is not new. It has a long and ugly history in propaganda. European colonizers in India and Africa feared the Black Peril their belief that native African men were sexually violent and naturally attracted to white women. This was part of their justification for the violent and oppressive colonialism that eventually led to apartheid. 
If you want a 20th century example, during the French occupation of Germany after World War I, German newspapers sounded the false alarm of the Black Plague, mass rapes and murders by Senegalese troops in the French army. Hitler, true to form, blamed the Jews for bringing in the Africans. <laughs> and in 2015, before Dylan Roof murdered nine people in Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, he reportedly told the black congregation, you rape our women and you're taking over our country, you have to go. I can also think of uh, some comments about um, insurgents coming to rape our native people from a certain president who shall not be named. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I might have heard that a time or two from pretty uh, pretty recently. This kind of rhetoric has been used. of the office. Um, it, th- this is a narrative that pops up over and over and over again in propaganda throughout history as a means of making people fear the other and to provide justification for subjugating groups of people. It has a really ugly history, and Tucker is ugly for engaging in it. The truth is that in Europe, just like in the United States and the rest of the world, the vast majority of sexual violence is committed by perpetrators who the victims already know. While the specific stats will vary from place to place, it is universally true that instances of rape committed by victims' family members, relationship partners, co-workers, and friends are significantly more common than those committed by strangers. The goal of this rhetoric, of course, is to make you afraid of strangers. This is just bigotry. One interesting thing of note, though, is that there is one population who do seem to suffer higher rates of rape as a result of immigration. That group is immigrants. In 2011, the International Journal of Culture, Health, and Sexuality conducted interviews with 223 refugees, asylum seekers, undocumented migrants in Belgium and the Netherlands. The majority of the respondents were either personally victimized or knew of a close peer being victimized since their arrival in the European Union. A total of 332 experiences of sexual violence were reported, mostly afflicted on them by ex-partners or asylum professionals. More than half of the reported violent experiences comprise sexual violence, including rape and sexual exploitation. Results suggest that refugees, asylum seekers, and undocumented migrants are extremely vulnerable to sexual violence, for reasons that should be obvious. They're likely unfamiliar with the country's legal codes or how to report crimes. They may not even speak the language and not be able to ask. If they are undocumented, they might be afraid to report these crimes for fear of fines, penalties, or deportation, often back to dangerous situations they fled from in the first place. Abusers take advantage of these vulnerabilities. So, yeah, um, this is disgusting. Tucker is disgusting for engaging in it. And, uh, I guess the point I'm trying to make is I would not plow his driveway. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, Troy? I wouldn't plow his driveway either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's the end of what we're going to cover. He has one more segment on this episode where... Uh, he makes fun of Pete Buttigieg for saying that there should be more accessibility for wheelchairs and transportation. It, it's stupid, and uh, Tucker is trying to be funny, and he doesn't know how to do that without being mean, and I'm not going to talk about it. Um, so yeah, this is where we are, and this is why I wanted to cover this slate of episodes to start with. We uh, 
This gives us a really good picture of how he operates. We see a lot of his tricks, including uh, feigning class warfare, taking people out of context, pretending they said things they didn't say, building strawman arguments to attack, and then uh, using this all to mask naked bigotry. And just, like, taking something that is so boring and non-controversial and and trying to make an enemy out of it by jumping through all these hoops <laughs> to make, like you just said, like, accessibility for people who use wheelchairs. Like, it's, it's just such a non-issue. Like, yeah, people who have wheelchairs should also be able to go places. And, and, but it's a crime from the left. It's, it's part of the culture war. They're trying to silence you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's so dumb. It, it's super dumb. He, all, all he does is pedals in outrage. He wants to get his viewers worked up and make them feel attacked so that then they, uh, will support policies that engage in this meaningless culture war bullshit that doesn't actually affect their lives. And nothing ever changes in the entrenched power structures in this country that keep people poor and the rich rich. Tucker is a is a goalie for billionaires. He's made millions and millions of dollars protecting their interests from any real social change whatsoever, while pretending that he hates them. It's gross, and uh, I guess I'm going to keep covering it because I think it's important and people should know h- how shitty this guy is. Um... With that said, I I didn't I forgot to pull the clip of it, but the way that Tucker ends every single episode of his show, he says, uh, "This has been Tucker Carlson tonight, the show that's the sworn enemy of lying, pomposity, smugness, and groupthink." He actually says that at the end he, of every episode. He sure does every single one, um, at least that I've watched. Um, Is irony dead? <laughs> yes. <laughs> complete lack of self-awareness so i thought it would be fun for us to be a sworn enemy of something uh tyler what's your sworn enemy my sworn enemy yeah i i I don't know if it's just the mood i'm in but probably capitalism (laughs) all right this has been tucked out the sworn enemy of capitalism (laughs) lying about murder and uh plowing tucker carlson's driveway hell yeah uh, we'll be back, but in the meantime, um, don't watch Tucker's show. I'll do it for you. Agreed. And uh, try to enjoy your life. Buck up. It's going to get better. <laughs>